0: Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's August 1st, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes, joined by Michael Warren and David Viler of the Weekly Standard. You know, obviously, we're going to have a lot to talk about here. Um, the president uh, tweeting out that the Manafort prosecution is a hoax, calling on Jeff Sessions to shut down the investigation into the Russian interference. We have, uh, you know, more uh, more trade war saber rattling uh, the Koch brothers continue to uh, distance themselves from uh, Donald Trump. And, of course, uh, he takes the bait and uh, lashes out at them, whether that is significant or not. Uh, but let's let's start off with the story that's on the lead on the Weekly Standard webpage right now. Scott Walker has a Trump problem. Um, David, I'm sitting here in the state of Wisconsin right now. The mm-hmm. conventional wisdom is, is that there are no uh, undecided voters for Scott Walker. The Democrats have a, a very, very... Uh, large and rather unimpressive field. So the conventional wisdom is that he'll probably be reelected the same way that he has in the past, but you raise some questions about how this year's election differs from the previous races that he won.
1: Right, right. So the way that I look at it is a little bit different. And I kind of start out by going back to 2010 and 2014 and trying to figure out if there's any connection in the data between sort of the national environment overall and between how well scott walker did in both of those elections and you know it's it's a mixed bag because obviously state issues matter a lot with walker it's it's not just some proxy fight for national issues it wasn't all about obama or something like that but the specific conditions of 2010 and 2014 did seem to help walker in both of those years there was a really solid actually i would say excellent gop turnout throughout the country, Wisconsin included, and uh, that's kind of on a more national level. So there are these atmospheric things that have helped Walker in the past that simply won't be there for him in 2018. Instead of having an unpopular Democratic president in the White House, as was the case in 2010 and 2014, you have what looks right now like an unpopular Republican president. So that kind of potentially messes with the turnout that uh sort of has some sort of effect on this gubernatorial races are a little bit more sheltered from these national conditions than say a senate race or a house race or something along those lines but that's that's a problem for Scott Walker because he won all the last of his three elections but he didn't win them necessarily by overwhelming margins these weren't you know the Double-digit wins that you've seen in some other states. Five, elsewhere. five six points, right? Five, yeah, yeah, they're they're yeah. solid. They're solid, but they're not sort of invincible, if that makes sense.
0: Well, you start off though by talking about one of it always struck me as one of the most interesting results from 2010, where Wisconsin really decisively slipped, uh, sw- uh, switched from from blue to red. That Scott Walker was running for governor against an unpopular uh, in- incumbent, and Ron Johnson uh, beat Senator Russ Feingold. And what was interesting was that in a state that's norm that's known for ticket splitting, that Walker and Johnson pretty much got the same voters. I mean they were they were there was not a lot of ticket splitting. In fact, they were very, very close. as you point out, Johnson won by 4.8 points, Walker won by 5.8 points. Um, the results would suggest obviously that Johnson and Walker shared an awful lot of voters. So mm-hmm. the, the question is because I think this is the, the fundamental question, are there still voters uh, who are going to split their tickets are there voters who are going to vote for scott walker but also vote for tammy baldwin or are they basically joined at the hip
1: right i think this is a good question and the way that i'm thinking about it is slightly different it's not necessarily are there but the question for me is how many right because in my mind, I think that Baldwin is a pretty solid bet for re-election. If you look at our past sort of quantitative models for how Senate elections work and you look at the projections for this year, things are looking pretty good for, for Tammy Baldwin. Uh, if I remember correctly, it's swing seat, our Senate model, gives her roughly 95 percentage chance of winning in november so there has to not only be those voters there has to be enough of them you know if walker runs ahead of baldwin's eventual republican opponent whoever comes out of the primary then he has to run ahead not only by you know a couple points but by a really solid amount so uh and that that's why i think that data about uh johnson versus walker is interesting because you're right yeah i i looked at it on a ward by ward basis Plotted it out, ran some stats, and they really do seem to share, or they did in 2010, seem to share a lot of the same voters.
0: Okay, so let's talk about the the, the Trump effect on all of this. Uh, you're, you're you're suggesting that that uh, Trump's unpopularity could create real problems for him. How would we we, we see that on the um, in, in the in the vote breakdowns?
1: Right. So right now, before we have results, uh, it's going to be a little bit baked into the turnout because in a midterm where you have an unpopular Republican president, the turnout is going to look different than in a midterm when you have an unpopular Democratic president. You're not going to have the Republicans sort of supercharged like they were in 2010 or 2014. Uh, You're going to have some enthusiastic Democrats. So in some ways, I'm not a big proponent of sort of cross-tab diving and trying to go in and correct samples and things like that. I think there's there's more than one way to run a poll. But that sort of filters through all the way up to the top lines. And I think that's part of the reason why we saw some rough polls for Walker uh, in the course of the last week. The NBC Marist poll had him down by double digits. Um, if I recall correctly, Emerson had him uh, down by sort of mid to high single digits. Marquette had him up earlier mm-hmm. in the month. But the sum of those three data points is a deficit for Walker, and that's just that's one of the interesting things about the race is that if you look at sort of the uh, handicapping that you know Cook and Sabado and uh, Real Clear Politics and Inside Elections and all of them do, and you compare it to the polling, there's a little bit of a split where the handicapping sort of leans to the right, and the polling sort of leans to the left at the moment. But everyone mm-hmm. thinks it's close.
0: Okay, so bottom line here, you write it is tough to look at Trump's overall popularity and count the president as anything better than a liability for Walker. You know what's Mm -hmm. interesting about uh, all of this is, uh, you know, speaking of the Senate race, uh, you know, Tammy Baldwin's race, the uh, that uh, Senate primary is coming up in just a couple of weeks now, and uh, the two Republican candidates, uh, Leah Vukmir and uh, and uh, I'm sorry, I was going to say Scott Nicholson. That's actually somebody that 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 I know, Um, Kevin Nicholson. I'm sorry, Kevin Nicholson, Kevin. Nicholson. Wow. See, this is what this is what happens when I'm jet lagged. <laughs> Kevin Nicholson are really vying with one another about who is more Trumpian than the other. You know, Kevin Nicholson's a former president of the National Young Democrats. And of course, he's got to prove that he's not just conservative. He's a Trump conservative, not just a Trump conservative. He's a Steve Bannon conservative. And Leah Vukmir, who used to be um, you know, quite uh, a Trump skeptical, is uh, is also going on saying, no, I've always been for Donald Trump. I don't know whether you guys saw it. I'm, I'm taking sort of a perverse pleasure in one of my two-year-old radio shows now driving the news cycle here because somebody came up with a videotape of Leah Vukbir being on my show, basically holding her nose about Donald Trump and saying he was offensive to everybody. But in the primary, um, basically, they're vying with one another who will be more loyal to Donald Trump. And, you know, David, your your point being that uh, that may get you through the primary, but is not in the current environment, is not going to be uh, an obvious advantage in the general election.
1: Right, exactly. And this is sort of the paradox within the Republican Party right now is that within the Republican Party, Donald Trump's approval rating, you know, varies from poll to poll, but it's often in the 80 percent, 90 percent range. So you have to be running in a very specific district or a very specific state to think that you can run away from Trump and still uh, do well in your primary. Really, one of the better strategies is to hug Trump in your primary. Mm-hmm. But the Trump's top line approval rating is not great. It's been hovering in sort of the low to mid 40s recently. Um, that's, that's not a good overall national number that filters down into the state by state numbers. And so you end up with candidates who have hugged Trump in an effort to win the primary and then have to figure out okay, is my state red enough that I can just keep doing that and take that strategy and go for broke? Or is this sort of a state where I have to try to attack and do things differently and change my messaging from the general to the primary? And Wisconsin, you know, based on my math, it looks like one of those states where uh, it makes sense for both of the candidates in the Republican Senate primary to try to be on Trump's good side or be on the good side of sort of, the Republican Party generally by hugging Trump. But then in the general election, they're going to have to think about, okay, is that a viable strategy when Trump is Mm -hmm. overall underwater in my state?
0: Okay, now Michael Warren. Um, this I think is, is is fascinating. But you you tell me how significant this is. We're now pivoting here. This Trump feud with uh, they're no longer the Koch brothers. I guess we call them the the Koch Network. Network. The headline in uh, the Washington Post is Trump feud with Koch Network exposes rift between populist forces and establishment GOP. I I'm not sure I buy the language there. Um, but is this the first real? I don't know whether that's the way to put it. It feels like the first real split uh, with the with the conservative money um, money forces grassroots uh, operation. Uh, how significant is it that that the Koch network is uh, you know putting distance between itself and the Trump administration, and that Trump has now decided to escalate the feud by attacking them?
2: Um- I kind of want to take a rain check on that question until okay. after the election because I think it's I think we will we will know how significant it is after the election. The Koch network is, as you say, Charlie, is it, it, to call it the establishment is really not accurate. It's no, it's it's always been a sort of a parallel organization to the Republican establishment and is much more libertarian in its. Um, in its in its politics, obviously, but also in its policy goals, um, uh, in terms of the things that the Koch political uh, operation has been concerned with. It's been concerned with things like uh, federal spending, with um, with things like regulations. Um, and so um, there's always been a distance there. Now you have a new establishment, a Trump-aligned establishment. Um, now, where I think before the Republican establishment always uh, saw the benefits, saw a coalition um, uh, could be could be uh, forged uh, with with the Kochs. Um, now, and I really do think it's a personal thing with Trump. Uh, it's a Shocking uh, for me to say that. Um, uh, there's this. There's this divide, which I think either could be significant. The Koch uh, political network uh, is a is a big part of the general conservative and Republican um, get out the vote effort. Um, or it could not be. It could be that Trump right. and the Trump uh, uh, the Trumpian nature of the Republican Party supersedes anything the Kochs. Uh, have been able to do. Maybe this is all revealing, as Trump has done throughout his, um, you know, three years in our uh, in our mainstream political life. Has sort of shown that all of these institutions on the Republican side uh, are basically bankrupt. Um, I think that that could be the result if Republicans do better um, than uh, than than expected. If they if if you really see a drop off in turnout um, and and. David, I would be interested to see. Um, I don't know how you would map this or or, or sort of uh, quantify it, but it would be interesting to see. Maybe you can't. Um- if there is a drop off in sort of get out the vote efforts um if uh, if the Kochs decide to uh, to pull back on those efforts 400 but what i mean all, 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 what they I,
0: may what not, I think your yeah. analysis yeah, i think your analysis is right including whether or not the Kochs are going to find out that uh, the, the 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 wind is, is is not is not at their back on all of this if uh, they 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 may you know run up the flag and find out that their people um are not following them anymore on the other hand no, you are talking about an organization that said that it was going to spend $400 million in the midterms. And now they're also creating a different poll, at least in terms of the incentives for Republicans running for office, uh, essentially saying, look, if you're not going to stand up for free trade, if you're not going if you're going to uh, abandon some of these libertarian ideas, we are not going to financially support you. So now suddenly that that does change the calculus that we were talking about a few minutes ago, that if you're a Republican right now, you know, there's there's no alternative to being Trumpian, the Koch's in theory could say, All right, no, really, you know, if you are a conservative, let's go in this direction here. And and I noticed that, you know, people like Ben Sass are kind of, you know, grabbing onto this and saying, Okay, here is a another, you know, a, a another pole of the conservative movement uh, as opposed to it becoming completely, you know, unipolar with with Trumpism.
2: Yeah, and I think it's a natural place for um, Republicans to go because I think in their heart of hearts, um, Republican members of Congress uh, agree more with the Kochs on those issues, on the issues of trade, on the issue of um, of even you know entitlement spending. Um, this is uh, these are all things that the Kochs. Uh, in the sort of libertarian flair that they bring in the small government, um, the, the openness um, uh, that comes with, with free trade, the sort of small-L liberalism approach uh, to economics is much more... I think Republican elected officials are much more comfortable with that. It's just this nagging uh, political reality of Trump and uh, Trump's sort of populist um, attitude and approach. Uh, and I think that it's it's certainly healthy for the party uh, to have this fight. I mean, Ben Sass has really been kind of um, alone in it to have uh, money. Uh, and real serious money, you know, this is not um, playing around money, uh, as you mentioned, uh, to to sort of make a stand on this. Um, maybe it is significant, but um, I want to wait until after the election to really well, you know, it, it, analyze it. It, it is
0: it. interesting, you know, for the left, the Kochs have been, you know have been the demon for for so long. And w- one of the points that I've tried to make to different groups is: look, you have to understand that uh, you know the uh, the, the, the Kochs really have been focused on on ideas as, and, and play a different role than say the Mercers. There's like a new generation of big money oligarchs in the republican party there's oligarchs in the democratic party as well uh, but i think this is going to be interesting uh, the washington post uh, noting the republican lawmakers awkwardly stuck between two of the party's most influential forces are scrambling to adjust on monday gop senators privately deliberated about the path the coke network as uh, charted and its implications um in a private meeting at the capitol senator john cornine um Recounted his visit to the Koch conference, um, da, 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 described the frustration he encountered over Trump's trade policies and conduct. Uh, some senators in the meeting struggled to make sense of the Koch network's new strategy of limiting its work for its work for GOP candidates. If these guys want to change the direction of the country. They don't understand how hard that is, McConnell said. According to one Republican, so at least right now, they're trying to figure out how significant it is. But uh, as as you point out, the you know, when you're in an environment where 90% of uh, Republicans are saying that they are uh, they're, they're with Trump, uh, it, it's, it's going to be an uphill fight. Today's Daily Standard podcast is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Look, with all the recent news about online security breaches, it's hard not to worry about where your data goes. Making an online purchase or simply accessing your email could put your private information at risk. You're being tracked online by social media sites, marketing companies, and your mobile or internet provider. Not only... Can they record your browsing history, but they often sell it to other corporations who want to profit from your information? That's why I decided to take back my privacy by using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN has easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of my computer, my phone, or my tablet. Turning on ExpressVPN only takes one click. And frankly, it's I, I'm almost never going to go online without actually having that uh, in place because it secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Protecting yourself with ExpressVPN costs less than $7 a month. It is rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar, and it comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you ever use public Wi-Fi, and you know you do, and you want to keep hackers and spies from seeing your data, ExpressVPN is the solution. And if you don't want to hand over your online history to your internet provider or data resellers, ExpressVPN is the answer. So protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com standard. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com standard for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash standard to learn more. Thank you for listening to the Daily Standard podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow, and we will be doing this all over again. Okay, that's uh, again on, on the news today, and this is all breaking here. Uh, Michael Warren, the president uh, has, continues to escalate his attacks on the Mueller investigation. I feel like we've we've had this before but the latest story is that he's calling the Manafort prosecution a hoax, says that Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, should step in to stop the investigation of the Russian interference in the 2016 election. Um, this comes as uh, there's been some aggressive moving of the goalposts from saying that there was no contact, no you know, contact whatsoever. OK, there was contact, but there was no collusion to, well, collusion is not a crime. Where are we going here? Um, I mean, is Trump? I mean, I feel like we've had this conversation before. But is, is Trump gearing up to take some action uh, involving this uh, this investigation? I feel
2: a little bit like Charlie Brown and and seeing the football here because you're right. We've had this conversation. It feels like a million times. And I think that um, what we can draw from from that fact is that um, the priority here for the for the president is to muddy the waters. Is to make uh, Mueller and he's been successful at this, certainly with Republican voters, uh, to make Mueller toxic. Um, just look at some of the language in these tweets um, that he sent this morning. Um, the, the latest one, I mean, just right before we started recording, he tweeted um, uh, that uh, it's a total hoax. Uh, the Democrats paid for the phony and discredited dossier, which was along with Comey, McCabe, Struck, and his lover, the lovely Lisa Page, I like the lovely there, uh, used to begin the witch hunt. Um, earlier, he said Bob Mueller is totally conflicted, and his 17 angry Democrats that are doing his dirty work are a disgrace to USA. I think all of that. I mean, we've it's it's like we've heard these this song before. These these songs before. They're kind of his greatest hits on this. And I think the effect of that, or the certainly the intended effect, is to just get into the political bloodstream that Bob Mueller is conflicted. He's been sort of dancing around this issue that there's some conflict of interest that Bob Mueller has with regard to Trump, maybe having to do with his uh, 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 country club, uh, uh, a country club membership or something uh, that there are 12 angry Democrats who are working on, on this investigation. It's not about, yeah, yeah, no, it's not about taking action because what does he do? He's calling on Jeff Sessions who. The guy, the president can pick up the phone and call Jeff Sessions anytime he wants and says and say hey shut this down or you're fired and and he could do that and he's and he, instead he's tweeting about it I
0: think the idea here he's is – he's tweeting about an ongoing criminal trial yes I mean I, I, I again I I'm, I'm shrugging my shoulders here but I, I I do think there's a moment where you go okay you realize what is actually happening here I mean maybe we've become numb to all of this but you have an actual ongoing federal criminal trial. With a jury panel and the president of the United States commenting on it. Now, I don't know whether he's sending signals to Manafort. Uh, don't don't flip because I will pardon you or whatever. But um, Matthew Miller, who used to work in the Justice Department, says, uh, you know, we asked the question, which parts of the indictments of 25 Russians, including Russian military intelligence officers for attacking our democracy, constitute a witch hunt. Um, and and so Charlie, and Charlie,
2: those twenty-five. That his administration, Trump's administration, has has since uh, taken um, uh, instituted new sanctions against Russia because of that conviction. That is now he's calling a total hoax. So I just yeah, want to I throw mean, that I out obviously
0: there. Obviously, Jeff Sessions is not going to step up and and do anything about all of this. But I mean, you know, clearly we're e- we're either at a a crisis, which who knows, or or Sessions is. You know, we're, we're back to the don't listen to that guy. You know, we, we don't, we don't actually take the president literally. I mean, this has become the, the, the big go-to defense is that, you know, that the president's words don't matter. Just, just watch what he does. Well, speaking of what he does, um, uh, more indications that, you know, last week, it looked like we were stepping, backing down a little bit on, uh, the trade war with the, uh, the Europeans today. What it's, uh, we're escalating with the Chinese, Michael.
2: Yeah. I guess the, the white house is now considering um, upping those uh, those tariffs uh, against China from ten percent on like two hundred billion dollars worth of goods uh, to twenty five percent, and um, I mean it's it's it's. It's weird because we have this dynamic where supposedly everything's getting solved. You know that these tariffs, the real point of them is not to actually institute them, but to use them as a threat and use them as a negotiating tactic. And we can see that the uh, the, the the fact that the EU has has stepped aw- you know has kind of stepped down and they're willing to change, or at least they say they're willing to change, or at least. President Trump says that they say they're willing to change um, that this is sort of the way things are supposed to be going It's not working that way with China apparently and that's that's why this uh, this new um, uh, and of course this is all being deliberated Bloomberg's reporting that they're deliberating this in the White House so we we never know if that actually means, that's what we're going to end up seeing. But the, the, the signal is enough, right, to to really prompt even more retaliation. And so, I, I mean, I do wonder. I mean, we've been talking about states like Wisconsin, where the polling on. Trump's trade war, including with China, which um, I think there's legitimate reasons why we should be uh, approaching and uh, trying to uh, change China's behavior. But the retaliation with these with these tariffs from China really hurting uh, Wisconsin farmers. It's not very popular in states like Wisconsin and and, and other states with a lot of agriculture industry. Mm. And uh, I mean, you do have to wonder that I mean, is there any kind of political strategy going on here, or is the idea here that uh, you you keep fighting with China, you up the ante with China, and uh, that's good politics uh, for for Trump? I, I don't know, but it's it's really not um, – it really doesn't seem to be popular where he needs to be popular.
0: Oh, okay. So, David, as you put together these models – and I, I would urge listeners to go and look at, uh, at at David's swing seat model for the U.S. Senate seat, and, and we're talking about the the, the, the governor's races. One of the questions that I think sort of you know lurks in the background of all of this is does do these stories make a difference? you know I mean will you know are, are, are there voters that are swinging back and forth or has everybody just locked in place? Does this actually because if you look you look at the map, you would think that the one thing Republicans would not want to do significantly, is do things between now and the election that are going to impact these agricultural states. But so does that actually affect, are there voters in the real world who will change their votes as a result of the things we're talking about?
1: Yeah. So in my view, this is kind of a complicated thing. And both of the things that you're saying are true. I think there are a lot of voters that are locked into the Republican or Democratic camps. We have really pretty stable bases for both parties. And I guess I take a more macro view where I think the sum of all of these stories does end up mattering. So you have the Trump administration taking actions that uh, matters to farmers. And that's one data point. And you also have the whole healthcare push from last year. You also have the tax reform law. You also have everything that's happened with North Korea. And you kind of sum all of these things together so that one individual event usually doesn't necessarily... uh, that's not necessarily the straw that breaks the camel's back, or the one thing that necessarily matters, unless it's a big thing like, you know, say the Affordable Care Act, which was huge in 2010. But I guess the the point that I'm making is that the things that we cover on the day to day on a day to day basis do matter, and I think that it's sort of the sum of them together that shifts public opinion. And for what it's worth, in past elections, in 1988, and in other, um, you know elections in, in decades past when farm policy has been a bigger issue. You do see shifts within some of these Midwestern and some of these farm belt states and some of these things. So, yeah, I, I think voters do pay attention more than people give them credit for, but they pay attention to a lot of things and make kind of a summary judgment.
0: You know, I, Michael, you, we've talked about this before as well. I, I, I get all of the, uh, the, the Paul Ryan emails every single day. I'm sure you do as well. And he is trying so hard to focus the republican campaigns on the economy uh, on the on the tax cuts on the low jobless rate on this uh, r- remarkable 4% plus gdp you would think that a disciplined party would be talking about the, the economic numbers just just you know, you know obsessively <laughs> and consistently but every day the president seems really committed if if we if we assume that there's there's a plan here to throwing out more chaff to basically saying, look, let's look at this shiny object. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about that. So, how frustrated are Republicans about the this 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 inability to focus? And the you know, with every single day, it seems like we're adding another level of uncertainty to what's going to be happening between between now and the midterm elections.
2: Uh, I think, in some ways. Republicans in Washington have become numb to it all, mm-hmm. um, where it's just it, it's it's one crazy you know loop de loop on a roller coaster um, after another, and how can you even really make sense of it all? You are just trying to um, you know, I guess, not puke at the end of the ride. So the
0: um, that's I, I, always my goal.
2: Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I I do um, I do think it's interesting if the president gave the speech that he gave. On Friday, after the announcement of the 4.1 percent growth for the second quarter, um, which of course is not exactly 4.1 percent growth because it's it's just one quarter right. and not an annual, but quarter. anyway, it was it's a it's a good number, and he should uh, give that speech. If he gave that speech, you know, every week or every three days, or that's all he tweeted about from now until November, um, I have to imagine um, that that. That message, of course, if the economy continues to 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 work uh, as as well as it has, um, that's a great message for Republicans. It's kind of their only message, but it's it's a right. good one. um And so Republicans have to be frustrated, it's, but it's an obvious message, but but here's the thing sure. trump trump does not, i think, does not believe that it is. Um, it has much yes it has to do with the tax cuts yes it has to do with regulations but I think he, he sort of knows that those uh, accomplishments aren't really his um, even if he takes credit for them and um, like the, the the tax cuts the tax reform plan that's an old Republican idea that was really uh, got a chance to uh, 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 to pass into law the regulation cuts again it's sort of it's something that Trump adopted and has held on to and he should he should take credit for it. But he knows it's not really his. His viewpoint of the economy is that actually that his approach to, uh, on these trade issues is actually that we are getting fleeced, that the economy is right, not as good right. as it could be. And I think he, in, in a way, sort of leans into his own conception of what the uh, government should be doing to help the economy, even if it's to the uh, even if it certainly, as people like Gary Cohn fear, uh, is to the detriment of the Trump economy of that 4.1% growth. Um, uh, but also, be, I think because um, he has to take some ownership of this, um, I don't. Quite get it as a political strategy. Uh, I don't get it at all as a political strategy. But um, I think that explains. I mean, he likes to be in control of the message, and what better way to be in control than to be constantly talking about how we're being fleeced and how he's doing something well, to right. make it better?
0: No, he, he has his own narrative. I, I, you know, I, I'm I'm really struggling against you know some of the over the, the hysterical commentary about things that are going on, but for the president of the United States to be tweeting uh, what he's tweeting this morning and, and particularly intervening in the Manafort trial certainly does suggest that that he's rattled by something. I mean, it, this is clearly an obsession with him. Um, Obviously, the developments over the last few days in the Mueller investigation, the last few weeks, uh, have been uh, deeply troubling to him because it, it did seem for a while like he was just going to sort of ride it out. But It is inconceivable that any grown up in the White House or even the people that he talks to on the phone at night, who knows, would say that, you know, yeah, what you should do is you should um, put out a tweet uh, on the second day of the Paul Manafort trial calling the whole thing a hoax. uh, you know, the the day after, you know, more stories about Russian interference in the you know in our in our uh, democratic process. Well, uh, gentlemen, so David, uh, what what election are you going to be looking at uh, next? You're looking at Wisconsin. Um, what what should we look forward to in the next couple of days?
1: Yeah, there's a special election coming up in Ohio's twelfth district, and. Uh, there's a, Later on in the election season, there's a Republican Senate primary out in Arizona. Uh, to me, those are the two big events. The special in Ohio is going to give us data about the national mood, and uh, the primary in Arizona is uh, its whole own thing, that's its whole own story, and is, really matters for the overall battle for, for Senate control.
0: Yeah, no, that 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 Arizona race is going to be absolutely fascinating. Hey, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it very much. And thank you for listening okay, to nice. the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow, and we'll do this all over again.